This is exactly right. Case Files, an award-winning podcast, presents unforgettable true crime stories. Presented by an anonymous host, Case File delves deep into the crimes, investigations, and trials of solved and cold cases from around the world. With more than 250 episodes, the podcast has covered infamous unsolved mysteries, notorious murders, and lesser-known cases that deserve more attention. Discover why everyone from Rolling Stone to Time Magazine is calling it a must-listen experience. Follow Case File wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson. I'm a journalist who's spent the last 25 years writing about true crime. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired cold case investigator who's worked some of America's most complicated cases and solved them. Each week, I present Paul with one of history's most compelling true crimes. And I weigh in using modern forensic techniques to bring new insights to old mysteries. Together, using our individual expertise, we're examining historical true crime cases through a 21st century lens. Some are solved, and some are cold. Very cold. This is Buried Bones. Hey Kate, how are you? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm doing good. You know, I'm I had a very rare opportunity to be home alone for a stretch of a few days. It was just me and Cora, and I was like, well, what am I going to do? And you know what I did? Something I never do is I binge watched a show. What? I thought you didn't even <laughs> own a television, Paul Holes. <laughs> just you and music and <laughs> hard rock and that's it yeah no you know it was it was just kind of nice to kind of sit there and in the dark i mean this is going to sound really bad here i am home alone (laughs) sitting in the dark in my basement (laughs) i literally just ran across there was a uh a novel series by Lee Childs in which uh, the main character is jack reacher who's a former military police Uh, army investigator who's just decided he's kind of roaming around the country, sort of like in this transient state and finds trouble, you know, along the way. And that's how these various stories are. And and in fact, several movies starring Tom Cruise as Jack Reacher were made. Hmm. And the fans of the novels were a little bit disappointed. Not that Tom Cruise did a bad job with the character. It's just that the man that plays Jack Reacher, the way the character is written is a huge guy. He's just a big, powerful guy. And and that's not Tom Cruise, mm-hmm. you know. And so a lot of the fans of the book were a little disappointed in the casting. But uh, turns out there's this Amazon original called Reacher. And this actor, who I I didn't know, but he fits the Jack Reacher part. It was fun. You know, it was just fun watching this guy just tear up this town while investigating, you know, corruption and, and these, these homicides that are occurring. And, I, you know, it was just it was good escapism for me. I have thought about what your TV show choice, if you were to ever watch TV, would be. And I guess not Little Women. I thought it would be something along those no, lines. Not that. <laughs> <Hey>. Not that. 
Don't dismiss little women. And uh, so this makes a lot of sense. I think sometimes it's so nice to unplug. And I've said this before. For somebody who has two kids and three podcasts and a book and an audio book and, of course, a full-time faculty position, I watch a lot of television. Do you really? I do. I do. So I... (laughs) Every once in a while, I'll get on a little bit of a bender with a Real Housewives franchise. I don't need any judgment, Paul. <laughs> oh, the, the the judgment has already occurred swiftly. <laughs> I like the drama. I like the accents. I lived in New York for a long time. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, you can look at it from like a very interesting socioeconomic level of analysis. And uh, so anyway, I just think it's hilarious and sad and hilarious again. So and I also like a lot of fraud shows like the Firefest on Netflix. There's something really good on Hulu about WeWork, which I had never seen. Those are my like dirty little pleasures. (laughs) The Housewives. It's not as much murder as you would think, but I do feel like I have to, you know, keep on top of all of it. Well, you know, I, well, I, I get that because I don't really, I don't watch the true crime shows. For me, because everybody's asking me, oh, there's this series out there about this particular case or this other case, you know, like the the staircase, you know, is one that people have brought up. And, yeah. and for me, it's like, you know, I've got so involved in my own cases. It's just that I don't want to consume some other cases, especially when I can't have access to the official information. Yeah. It's just frustrating, you know? So for me, if I'm watching a show now, it's it's probably going to be more like this Reacher series. It's something that allows me to escape. Yeah. This is where I'm at. But yeah, I wouldn't have pegged you for- Housewives. You know, the real housewives. Yeah, that uh, surprises <laughs> me a bit. Well, let's talk about this story coming up because we are switching from, you know, something that was lighthearted to pretty serious. We talk about how people of color are underrepresented in true crime, both as victims and in the stories of history as the killer. And we have both here. And it is a very, very big mystery. And I think you're going to enjoy it because there's a big, big question mark. And it is a lot about dissolving the ideas that we have about women of color in the 1800s. We'll just see what you think about all of this. There's domestic violence. There's just a lot of stuff happening. Sounds good. Let's set the scene. We are in 1887, Eddington, Pennsylvania. There's a white carpenter who's heading into work, and he sees something laying on the bank of a nearby pond in Eddington. He takes a closer look. It is a headless, armless human torso. And now that I'm thinking about this, if I say human torso, doesn't that mean it is headless and armless? Is that... well? (laughs) <laughs> the details are unnecessary. If I just say torso, are you going to assume it's headless and armless? And legless if it's just a torso. That's the case. Just a torso. Okay. So here are some of the details already. It has been cut off above the pelvis, roughly four inches above the hip bone, leaving distended bowels. Ugh, already the story, man. Distended bowels protruding from the abdomen. No other body parts are found ever. This is it. This is all you get is this torso. Oh, wow. It has been really roughly cut, like jiggity-jaggity everywhere. Nobody seems to have done this uh, with any sort of skill. And that comes up as pertinent in just a minute. My question is, I've never understood the person who dismembers as a killer. 
If you want to hide identity, you're removing the fingerprints and the head. If we're in the 1800s and the DNA analysis isn't there, if we remove the sadistic part of this, Mm -hmm. I've never understood what the real purpose of this is. Well, people dismember for a multitude of reasons. Um, as you mentioned, you know, part of it is to delay or prevent identification of the remains. You also kind of hinted at there are some people that the dismemberment process is part of their fantasy. You know, this mm-hmm. is where you, you get into some fairly um, horrific psychologies with, with some of these offenders. But there's just a practical aspect to dismemberment, and, and that is to take a human body and make it into smaller packages that can be more easily secreted in various hiding locations, mm-hmm. as well as uh, make them easier to transport. Where now, instead of having to carry, let's say, an average 150 to 200 pound male body, you know, you, you've now got this body that is broken down into 20, 30 pound packages. And so, you know, multiple trips to bring those packages out to the carriage back in the 1880s, yeah. or you're hiding these packages and taking one or two out at a time and really distributing the remains. Uh, so it sounds like in this particular case, we don't know anything about the offender, don't know anything about the victim, Mm-mm. but, you know, the fact that they didn't find the rest of the remains sounds like uh, the offender really distributed the remains probably in fairly remote locations away from where this torso was. Right. Now, off the cuff, is this someone who is likely to have done this before or to have some sort of a criminal element about them? Or could this be a first-time person who just thought, okay, this is the best, most efficient way? It just seems so gruesome for somebody who, if this is an act of passion or a robbery gone wrong or something like that. I would even suggest that oftentimes when you have a, let's say, a serial offender, it's the earlier bodies that may be dismembered. But then as they gain comfort in committing these crimes and recognize the effort to dismember, as well as the cleanup process, they now realize, I don't have to dismember. Hmm. And they have the confidence to maybe transport the body whole. I don't think just looking at the body as being dismembered is a predictor as to whether or not this is an offender who has committed a violent crime before this or is going to continue to commit a violent crime afterwards. We just don't know enough information based on finding a dismembered torso. I could tell you that once the coroner gets a hold of the torso, there's no way to tell how this person died. It hasn't been shot or stabbed or anything that's revealed in the torso once the torso has been examined. A couple of key things, but we'll get to that in a second. The investigators arrive because the carpenter sounds the alarm, and they find some clues. So they find bloodstained clothing accessories. And this is going to be a new one for you because I know it was a new one for me. They found what appears to be a shawl strap. Have you ever heard of that? No. Shawl strap. You know what a shawl is, right? A shawl in my is is like a, I don't know, maybe a, a, a fancy scarf. Is that a right way to put it? Yeah. It's usually thicker and bigger. Wool. I like a wool shawl. So a shawl strap is a holder that you would use, and they used it in the 1800s frequently. It's got two straps, and I'm going to show you just for fun what it looks like. And it helps, obviously, with carrying a shawl or a small rug or, you know, a little bit of of some baggage. So this is what it looks like. And it doesn't seem like it's important, but when you've got a torso on a bank, 
mm-hmm. and you've got a carrying device, one would think that maybe this will play into the story a little bit. Yeah, no, you know, basically this shoal strap, it appears that it has a handle in the middle with two belts at each end of this handle. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I could see where if you roll up a blanket or a shawl or carpeting, you could put these belts around the rolled up item, Mm -hmm. uh, strap those two belts, and then have a handle to readily carry those items. Um, And this... I've never seen something like this before, but this almost looks perfect to use to carry this torso. Yep. We have a smarty on our hands, I think, with this killer. Yeah. So this is uh, bloody. And the police say, well, absolutely, this is connected. What else they find? They have this shawl strap. They find some calico fabric that they think could have been torn from a dress They have pieces of thick brown paper and some wrapping cord. So police, as you and I have talked about, theorize that these were items that were used to wrap and carry the torso before it was tossed near the pond or in the pond and then it washed up. Nothing else. No other physical evidence. And that's it. One of the things that is interesting is, you know, we talk about profiling and we go back to Jack the Ripper all the time where they say, you know, the, the way that the, the bodies in Jack the Ripper were cut, it's clearly somebody who was precise to a certain extent and it came from a doctor and we know that that's sort of been debunked. Yeah. And you and I have talked about how this is debunked. So this is a year before Jack the Ripper. But of course, this is in America. And what the police are saying is they at first wondered if this was a product of medical waste that had been improperly disposed of. Hmm. So if anybody's heard my other show, and Burke and Hare was season two of Tenfold More Wicked, there were anatomy professors in the 1800s who used bodies, sometimes of people who had been executed, but, you know, grave robbers would provide them with these cadavers. And oftentimes the lab people would then take the bodies once the professors were done with the bodies and, you know, dump them wherever. They were supposed to put them in a potter's grave, but they could have been dumped easily in the pond. And so the police said they were wondering if this was medical waste, but then they just weren't sure because if this were medical waste, number one, they would have seen, in my point of view, some dissection because that's the point of having a body, some dissection done on the chest, on the torso, which they hadn't. And number two, they just said it was so crude that it wasn't someone like an anatomy professor who would have known what they were doing. I think this is conjecture at this point, don't you think? What well, is to a point, you know, but part of evaluating the torso and, and how it's been dismembered is also taking a look and seeing if there's any indications uh, that the wound margins, was this torso still filled with blood? Mm-hmm. We don't even know at this point if this torso was, was something that was floating in the water. You know, part of what I would be looking at is, okay, is there blood still remaining in this torso? Is there anything within the wound margins, uh, within the bone itself, that the pathologist could, could opine to say, yes, there, this, this appears to have been somebody who had been alive relatively close to the time of being dismembered yeah. and it's going from there versus you think about a prosection from, let's say, anatomy class. I mean, it's very obvious on those that, you know, there, there's been no blood inside these tissues for a long, long period of time. Yeah. And certainly, you know, we know the difference. And in season two of Tenfold, the anatomy professors knew the difference between a body that had been freshly delivered, somebody who had just died versus someone who had been in the grave even two days. Hmm. That's actually a very interesting 
thought because sometimes I think you've even talked about it in, in some of these other cases where somebody has died and then the family has the body for days, if not a week or more before the body ultimately goes to burial. The living room aspect of it, the living room versus the funeral parlors part of it. Yep, you're right. So anyway, we don't have to go down the medical, luckily, we don't have to go down the, the medical waste road because it doesn't play into it. But it's interesting the way that they're trying to build a profile and saying an anatomy professor would have been much better than this hack job mm-hmm. with these bowels, you know, spilling out. So this is what the investigator, the coroner says. The only thing they can tell are three things. One is that it's a man. Two, that it's a man somewhere between 25 and 30. And they he has an unusual shape of his shoulders, uniquely rounded shoulders. So is that osteoporosis? What is that? Without actually seeing it, it's it's hard to say. Maybe there's a congenital aspect to his build. Mm-hmm. You know, that's very exaggerated because different people, you know, I'm thinking of like the, you can have the sunken chest, you know, that's mm-hmm. a congenital aspect. That would be a feature that stands out. That I don't know in terms of what exactly the pathologist is looking at. They're calling it stooping shoulders. Well, this may be, you know, like today we see, you know, the kids that are spending all the time in front of computers, you know, or even adults, you know, you end up getting this forward stoop as a result of just constantly being in that position versus being more upright, doing other types of activities. So, you know, with that type of description, I'm wondering if this is an indicator as to maybe the type of occupation that this the victim did and was hunched over a lot doing that that occupation um, and just developed that way. But it's hard to say. I, one of the things that the, the coroner has mentioned, you've got the stooped shoulders, but he's also saying it's, it's a male between the ages of 25 to 30. Mm-hmm. And that really seems way too narrow of an age range to be able to predict that. You know, just I don't see a pathologist or even a current day anthropologist being able to define such a narrow age window just based off the torso. Okay. Well, we'll see if we're right about that. So they say 25 to 30, but the stooped shoulders, I think, is really interesting, and it actually is helpful later on. So now we have people who become suspicious. And the main character of this story is a woman who is spotted on a train acting very oddly. And as word spreads about this torso that's been discovered in Pennsylvania, the newspapers pick it up, of course. It's a really big deal. And people start coming forward with tips. So the day before, a train conductor said there was a woman on his train who had purchased a round-trip ticket from Philadelphia to Cornwell Heights. He described her like this tall black woman with a southern accent. So we're in Pennsylvania. She would have stood out. She got off the train at Eddington. And the reason that he paid attention to her was because she was acting strangely. She did not want anyone near this package that she was toting. And it was a package wrapped in calico. So remember, calico fabric was found at the scene. And she was holding it with a shawl strap. It was the dead of winter. This is February in Philadelphia. Everybody's freezing on this train with all the windows closed. She sat next to the window and she kept her window open the entire time. 
So her name is Hannah Mary Tabs. I'm not an investigator, but even I can say this <laughs> sounds very suspicious. But it's more complicated than that. <laughs> what do you think? Well, I you know, I think first is you know, what information about what was found with the torso was put out into the public domain. Mm-hmm. You know, most certainly if that information had never been released to the public and now you have this train conductor coming up with this type of specific information that is so unusual mm-hmm. that, yes, this now, you know, the, the bells are going off as an investigator going, I need to figure out who this woman is. Mm-hmm. So Hannah Mary Tabs is a very complicated person. And the reason she's complicated is where she comes from and her behavior, not just the day that the train conductor saw her, but just her behavior in life and her background. This is not as simple as she's carrying a torso and she did it. There's a lot more to it. She was born in Maryland. Maryland was a slave state when she was born. But when she was younger, the Civil War broke out, and it's really just hard for us to find any information because she was a black woman, and she was born in this time period. So we don't know a lot about her early life, like her parents, how she grew up, but we can assume because of the time period, I certainly can assume, that she was exposed to a lot of racism and discrimination and very likely physical or sexual violence. And that is not, of course, to absolve anything going forward that we find out, but it is to say that, you know, it's important to know when we are in a time period where all of this is just sort of baked in because of what time we're in, in the 1800s, and how people of color were treated and where they came from, this is just a little bit of a a background. And I know that you know that that's important. It's not the end-all, be-all, but we want to know when we have a suspect, where they came from and what happens. It's not as easy to just dismiss them as a monster. Well, this is where, in terms of when we start taking a look at the individuals that are involved in the crime, we have the victim. And that, like I say, victimology is huge. But then as suspects are developed, you know, an evaluation of those suspects, their background, their personalities, their psychology is part of what an investigator does, in addition to trying to gather the facts about location and, Mm -hmm. you know, the means, motive, opportunity, you know, that this suspect may have had in relation to the crime. So it is very important to understand the suspect's background. It's really on the courts, you know, in terms of evaluating the suspect's background or now the defendant's background and how that might play into sentencing, as an mm-hmm. example. Is there some mitigating factor that the jury or the court may decide uh, we're not going to punish this person to the fullest extent of, of what we are permitted to from a sentencing standpoint? Well, we'll see if that comes into play with this story. You know, we like to give credit for people who do incredible amounts of research. Of course, I always say hi to Marin, who is an amazing researcher. But there is a woman named Callie Nicole Gross, and she wrote a book called Hannah Mary Tabs and the Disembodied Torso, A Tale of Race, Sex, and Violence. It's a great book, and Marin used it to get a lot of information. So we want to give her a lot of credit because Gross really did an incredible amount of research. Here's what she knows for sure about Hannah Mary, which is important, is that she was the guardian of a little girl named Annie. I don't know the age. 
but it just said a, a girl. So I'm going to assume, you know, under 15 or 16, could be 18, who knows. She was described as having very light skin. So we are not sure if this is her biological daughter or if it's, you know, a niece or if she was the product of a consensual relationship or a sexual assault. We just don't we don't know. But at some point, Annie is with Hannah Mary in Hannah Mary's life. And then Annie vanishes. And we don't know why. And that comes a little bit into play later on. So there is a girl who is in this woman's life who is now gone. And now people are saying that Hannah Mary Tabs has a torso that she's been toting around with this shawl strap. And we're going to start having to get some information from her. So let me tell you a little tiny bit more about her before we talk about, you know, what might have happened to Annie, which happens a little bit later. Hannah Mary is 21 in 1873 when she marries a 37-year-old man named John H. Tabs in Baltimore. And they and Annie, Annie is still in the picture, they eventually move to Philadelphia. And here's where things start looking not so great with Hannah. She has a really bad reputation for cruelty, for violence, for having outbursts that are specifically aimed at her husband and at Annie, which is the niece or the daughter, we're not sure. And in 1886, which is a year before this mysterious torso is discovered, that's when Annie vanishes. So when this media comes out, and it sounds like this train conductor is fingering Hannah Mary, people start realizing that there's a girl in this woman's life who has gone missing the year before. So, of course, they're saying, well, I mean, she's responsible for this torso, even though there's little evidence except what I've explained so far. And now this girl has gone missing. Hannah is painted really as a monster from the very beginning before they have enough evidence, you know, to release to the media to convince people otherwise. I'm wondering if you can talk just for a moment about the power of the media. We've talked about this a lot when information gets out. When there's information from a person's past, someone who hasn't been on trial or convicted yet, how can that really influence the public? And does that then influence investigators or DAs and make them feel pressure to really move forward with a case? When you find out your main suspect has had a sexual assault in his past or has killed someone else in his past? Well, the media has tremendous influence on public perception uh, when it comes to the circumstances of the crime, as well as who the public thinks committed the crime. And this, especially when we start talking about back in, you know, this time frame, 1887, you know, the only way the public is really learning about anything related to this crime, I imagine, is through the newspapers, the written word. And word of mouth and rumors in town hall. Yep. Yeah. So now the public generally doesn't have the capacity from having access to all the details in order to form independent opinions. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to rely upon the journalist that's writing the article. And that journalist, depending on how that article is written, can truly sway public opinion. And so now, you know, there may be somebody who's arrested. Mm hmm. And that person's name gets out there. And then that arrestee is released. 
lack of information. Well, the public now truly believes that that arrested person is the killer, mm-hmm. whereas there may have been sufficient probable cause to affect an arrest, but uh, under further investigation, there wasn't sufficient evidence. In fact, there may have been even exculpatory information where you go, this person is not responsible. Yet now the media is already run with that name associated with that crime. And so the public thinks that that is the person. And why did law enforcement release them? Why did the DA not file charges? Mm -hmm. So it can be very negative in terms of the truth of what's going on in the investigation. And then now if you get the public outcry, then there's the pressure on law enforcement. We got to solve this case. You release this person. And I imagine if you have an unscrupulous investigator or agency or DA, they're going to go, well, you know what? We're going to go after this guy. Even though we know he likely didn't do it, we're going to go after him just so we get this pressure off of our back. And then they can't get a fair trial if they do go to trial. You know, and then there's the defense attorney demanding a change of venue because everybody knows about this case and there are protesters. And, you know, I'm a member of the media. I get it. But the media in the 1800s was, particularly with a black woman, just vengeful. It's pretty amazing what happens in this case. So let's get back into it. You know, I mentioned what we know about Hannah Mary. She was married to a 37-year-old man. She had a niece or a daughter who disappeared the year before the torso was discovered, a torso that was on the bank of this pond in Pennsylvania is wrapped in a piece of calico fabric that seems to match what people are saying Hannah Mary had. And now she is being hauled into a police investigation into who this person is, who is this torso that was washed up. We also know that Hannah Mary, just anecdotally, sounds like a really terrible person. She is abusive to everybody, verbally, physically, very violent, even though, of course, she says, I'm not. And she reportedly even harasses and assaults her neighbor. So Callie Nicole Gross, the woman who wrote the book, points out that Hannah's violence has always been aimed at other black people. And it's an important point because Gross says that's why there's no arrest record. Because you could say about her as a suspect, well, I mean, look at her record. Her record's clean. But you have people who are not going to report it and police who could care less. So now you've got somebody on the street, Hannah, who sounds like has a terrible reputation and has done probably broken the law many times, but has no arrest record simply because of the time period she's living in and the color of her skin. Okay, so kind of getting back to the, the train with Hannah on the train. The route that this train took is Eddington along that route. She got off on that stop, Eddington. So she's in the town. Yep, we have the location and the size of the package. Obviously, the shoal strap, the calico fabric, but the size of the package, is that consistent with the size of a adult male torso? Or is this possibly... What I'm thinking about is, you know, first, it's just almost ludicrous from a standpoint of thinking, I've got a dismembered body part and I'm going to take public transportation (laughs) to get rid of it. This is not well thought out from my perspective. But at the same time is, is that, well, we have other body parts. Yeah. Was this a method that Hannah was using to dispose of other body parts? And could there be a clue as to where some of these other remains are based on where she was getting off the train. 
she got on the train in Philadelphia. She was supposed to go to Cornwall Heights, but she got off the train at Eddington. And that's where the torso was found. Let's talk about who the victim is. So they have Hannah Mary, and she is being questioned. The newspapers are talking about it. It's going all over Pennsylvania. And pretty soon, a woman comes forward to Philadelphia police. Her name is Jane Cannon. And Jane says that her 22-year-old brother has been missing since the day that the torso was found. And his name is Wakefield Gaines. Wakefield Gaines' sister says that he has particularly rounded or stooping shoulders, which I know does not mean much, but that is the one thing they really could tell other than the 22. And they said 25 to 30. He's 22. So (laughs) you're right, not completely accurate for sure. (laughs) So Wakefield is the victim, and we start getting some background on Wakefield. Jane says, Wakefield has been missing. I don't know what's happening. I do know that he's been romantically involved with this crazed woman named Hannah Mary Tabs. And so now the police are putting this all together, and now we learn about their relationship. They had been romantically involved, and it had always been a nightmare of a relationship. She's married, first of all, to John. So let's keep John in mind, because now you have a husband who may or may not know that his wife is having an affair with a 22-year-old, and he's 37. Okay. You've got Hannah Mary, who's in romantically involved with this guy, and they had just broken up after a particularly volatile episode. And two weeks earlier, part of this breakup came because Hannah had slashed him with a knife, and he had said listen, I'm dating another woman. You're married. I don't want this anymore. And so she took out a knife and slashed him and reportedly screamed that she would kill him or she would get even with him. And then she stalked him for several days. Just before he vanished, Wakefield had accused Hannah of trying to poison him. So all of this seems on point for Hannah. She is very volatile. It doesn't mean she's guilty, but we're adding more information. She knows the victim, all of that. Yeah. You know, this is where what I call churn. I dig into a case. You know, there's many potential suspects that I would run across and I start looking at these suspects. And and it's a lot of times there just doesn't seem to be any overlap with that individual and the crime itself. But then if you run across somebody and then you start getting these types of details, these details themselves, they don't really stand alone Mm-hmm. But as you start stacking those details, this is that churn. Okay, there's something here. I need to keep going down this particular lead. It may peter out, you know, but there's something there I'm grasping upon that is pulling me deeper into that person to see were they the ones responsible for the crime? Were they the ones responsible for the homicide? And right now, as these investigators are digging into this relationship, there's churn there. So they're going to keep going. And this is where things get confusing (laughs) with stories. So just bear with me and we'll kind of go back and forth on this because there are some confusing stories here. And now our job is to untangle what the likelihood is of what everybody's story is working out and trying to find the truth. So Jane says, my brother was dating this woman. She just snapped on him and I think she's the one who killed him. And they say, well, why are you suspicious besides the fact that Hannah is very violent? 
She says, well, something weird happened. The morning that Wakefield disappeared, Hannah came over to Jane's house, his sister's house, which she said was very strange because she and Hannah were not friends. Jane did not approve of her relationship with Wakefield. You know, that was their only connection was this man. So Jane told the police that Hannah had been crying, and she said that she thought that the torso found in Eddington belonged to her brother. And Jane was very, very suspicious. So this is the time period between when the torso had been discovered, not identified, and the train conductor had not come forward yet. So it's sort of right in the middle. I am so confused about why Hannah would do that. Is she trying to um, sabotage herself? Well, I think, you know, this sounds more like uh, she's she's trying to play Jane. She's she's showing up in this emotional state. So she's crying. She's trying to show concern for Wakefield. To me, it sounds like this is more manipulation of Jane. She knows that Jane is aware of her and Wakefield's relationship, the acrimonious aspect of the the relationship, and is trying to get out in front behaviorally with Jane. So when Jane does find out Wakefield is missing or they identify these remains as Wakefield's, she's going to not suspect Hannah because Hannah just was so devastated by the thought that Wakefield could be you know, dead, and these remains are his. So this really, to me, sounds like Hannah is premeditating how she's going to manipulate Jane to where the investigators land on Jane and talk to Jane. Jane's not going to be fingering Hannah as being, oh, you need to look at her. And I guess I was thinking that there are so many people who I often report on on victims who nobody cares about. No one gives a shit about some of these people. You know, they don't have family members who are going to police. Hannah must have assumed that Jane was going to go to the police at some point, which she did. Ultimately, the police find Hannah in Philadelphia where she lives and they kind of do a cursory observation and she has a black eye. She says it was the result of an accidental slip and fall. But, you know, it looks like something happened to her. Now, it could have been domestic violence because she's married and somebody found out something. It could have been the result of Wakefield fighting back while he's being killed. Both seem to be on the table for me. Black eye. Oh, for sure. The falling and, and receiving of a black eye. I mean, it, it can happen, but most certainly the eyes, the face, uh, the head, when somebody falls, they really try to protect that part of their body during the fall, unless they're just so inebriated. You have this, what we call the fall down drunks, where they look like they've been beat up. But the reason why they have all these the bruises and lacerations to their face and the head is that they're not so cognizant because they're so under the influence of alcohol or drugs that they don't protect those parts of the body. But for most people, you know, who are not under the influence, when they do fall, you don't see as much of these these injuries to the head unless it's like during a very, you know, that sudden athletic movement or something that it was so unexpected that you don't have time in order to brace the fall. Mm -hmm. Hannah Mary has a hard time explaining a lot of things, most certainly her timeline. So first, let's talk about John. Police, of course, go to her husband and say, did you know about this affair? And he said, yes. And yes, this is Wakefield. And my wife is very violent. 
and he said things with her have been even weirder than normal. He was leaving for work Wednesday night and then came home about 8 o'clock that night. Hannah was not at home. She didn't come home until three hours later. So he says, I have no idea where she was. And at first when I was thinking about this, I thought, well, why aren't they homed in on him? But he's at work. He probably has a really good alibi, and they are really focused on Hannah. There's three hours that don't seem like can be accounted for in her timeline. It dawns on me, you know, John is aware of the affair. Of course, you know, this is one of the you know, prime motives Mm -hmm. that people end up committing violence is when there is this lover's triangle, this jealousy aspect. You know, I kind of wonder based on John's demeanor and talking about, yeah, she's having this, this affair. Maybe in some ways he was like, oh, good. You know, now her attention and her wrath is being focused on Wakefield and not on him. Yep. But as time goes on, I think John potentially is in danger of becoming a victim the way that I'm reading Hannah at this point. Here's where we switch a lot of things around. I am not going to try to convince you that Hannah was a good person because it sounds like she really was a hellraiser in the worst sense of the phrase. But I don't know yet if she's a killer. And here's why. Hannah confesses. She says to police, you're right, the torso belongs to Wakefield Gaines. I never hurt him, but I did help the person who killed him. So I did transport body parts, but I was not the one who killed him. I was an accessory. And then she has information about the person who actually killed him. And now we have to figure out if we believe her or the other suspect we're about to meet. Well, we keep going younger here. So we've got Hannah, who has now met an 18-year-old named George Wilson. Straight away, no research says that they were lovers, that they were even close friends. This is an acquaintance. So this is what makes the whole story really weird. Because this is something that might not have been premeditated because we don't know the circumstances yet, but it was certainly covered up. And because of how ambiguous this case becomes, it's very difficult for law enforcement to untangle all of this. So this is what happens. Hannah says that there's this guy named George Wilson. George came to her, and they just had sort of known each other from around Philadelphia in the black community. George came to her one day and said, I know what happened to Annie. And remember, Annie is the young girl who was in her care who had disappeared. Hannah had said, I never had anything to do with her disappearance. And so when George came to her and said, I know what happened, she is confused and interested and also very wary of him, as are police, because he confirms, I did go to her and say, you know, I know what happened to Annie. What the police believe is that he approached Hannah at the beginning to scam her. Give me some money. I'll tell you what happened to your daughter slash niece. And I know that that's confusing, but I have to explain how these two became in each other's orbit to begin with. So we have somebody who's a potential con artist who she's now gotten involved with for some reason. Yeah. So this con artist, you know, this is where with Annie, 
you know, we know Hannah had access to Annie. Mm-hmm. When Annie goes missing, it doesn't sound like Hannah reports her missing. Does she do? So it's almost like this, this mother is just like, oh, well, my daughter's gone, which is suspicious. Mm-hmm. You know, for my, my first instinct is, is Hannah had something to do with Annie's disappearance, whether that's, you know, Annie was killed and disposed of or was given away, you know, uh, who knows? So for a con artist to come forward and in essence say, I know what happened to Annie, he's, he's making a play as to he's got to have confidence that Hannah didn't have anything to do with with Annie's disappearance. That's where I'm confused about the stance he's taken relative to what I, I think maybe is just an assumption on my part that Hannah was involved in Annie's disappearance. Here's one of the problems that we face that you and I have talked about a lot, and I mentioned at the top of this episode, is we don't even know how old Annie was. So Annie could have been 15 or 16, which in this time period meant she could have just said F you to Hannah and left because Hannah sounds like a nightmare to live with. So it could have been, I don't know if this is a nine-year-old girl. This could have been a 16, 17-year-old person. We don't know. And that's not to say that this is someone who should have been forgotten, but it could have been someone who walked away. What I thought was interesting is that George owned up to trying to, it sounds like, scam Hannah, I'm assuming, out of money. So she is with Wakefield when this happens. George says, hey, let me talk to you. And he gives her this information. Hannah does not seem to take it very well. And there's an argument. Everybody's vague about this argument between George the 18-year-old, and Wakefield, the 22-year-old. Hannah says, I'm going to tell you what happened. She said, there's a fight. And George picks up a chair and hits Wakefield, and it kills him. And, you know, Hannah just stands there. She never gives a really good excuse for why she didn't stop any of this, except that there's two grown men who are fighting in front of her, and she probably doesn't want to get involved. She says, it killed him. I did not do the dismemberment. But I did take his torso and put it in that shawl strap and carry it like a package onto the train, got out at Eddington, and dumped it by the pond. So she is copping to an accessory. She is not copping to murder. And the reason this is important is because she is now dragging George Wilson, rightfully or not rightfully so, into this case. And that's why it becomes so convoluted. Who killed us? This man is dead. Somebody did it. But which one of them did it? Yeah, see, I'm I'm calling bullshit. <laughs> Wait, on which part? I said a lot there. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that Hannah is saying George is the one that killed uh, Wakefield. Think about this. George is just now confronting Hannah, trying to con her, probably for money, about Annie. And then she's saying he kills Wakefield, and now she's an accessory to try to protect this man who is just trying to con her. That does not pass the sniff test, in my opinion. Well, I wonder if this was a conversation that Wakefield was there for. I'm not sure why Hannah would cover up on George's behalf, this murder of somebody she supposedly loved. George does admit to some things. This is where it gets really interesting. The police, who we're assuming were all men, I'm sure, at this point in Philadelphia, say, you know what? That makes sense. Because they do not believe, this is so classic, 1800s, they don't think a woman could carry out such a heinous murder. They believe women can kill. 
I don't think they believe that a woman on her own could kill a grown man, dismember him, and then scatter his parts everywhere. Now, taking a look at Hannah, you you described her as this very tall. Yep. I'm envisioning her being so aggressive, especially in her relationships with Wakefield. I don't know about what was going on between her and John, her husband, but... You know, I'm imagining a woman that's fairly robust, you know, so she's probably physically stronger than the average woman of that time frame. I can think of a, a, a recent case. In fact, it was a case that we profiled when I was part of the America, the, the reboot of America's Most Wanted with Elizabeth Vargas. Mm-hmm. And we had a case where a woman killed her boyfriend, shot him and dismembered him and then scattered his remains in plastic bags uh, along a freeway. Women commit these types of crimes today. So they could have committed these types of crimes back in the 1880s, for sure. They are actually more likely in the 1880s between domestic violence, poison, and women probably being pretty physically fit. I mean, a woman in her position probably worked, did a lot of physical labor. Mm -hmm. So the police say, oh, this woman could have never done it. They start looking at George. Now, here's some interesting little factoids about George. He used to work in a slaughterhouse, so this guy knows how to cut meat, and he is now very interesting as a suspect. He's arrested because of what Hannah says, and it makes sense to them. And, of course, he works at a slaughterhouse, has worked at a slaughterhouse. He's arrested. He says, I have nothing to do with Wakefield Gaines's disappearance or his murder, but he thinks that she is scapegoating him because he has refused to give her information about the niece. Now, he's not saying I have real information about Annie and her disappearance. He's just saying she's pissed. Mm -hmm. And she killed her boyfriend, and now she's taking it out on me, and I'm a good scapegoat here. Again, it comes back to, boy, this doesn't sound like she did anything to Annie because, you know, he's admitting that he teased her with information. She is saying... I can't believe this guy approached me with this information. It just doesn't, to me, seem like she actually did anything, but she's also a terrible person, so it wouldn't surprise me if she did. Well, Annie is a mystery. Big one. But fundamentally, in the homicide of Wakefield, it is now evaluating the veracity of George versus Hannah. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not just their statements. It's also, okay, we have a crime scene somewhere. Where was Wakefield killed? Where was his body dismembered? Where were these two individuals during the time that this is occurring? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a lot of footwork that needs to be done by the investigators to tease out, well, who's telling the truth here? Yep. So let's talk about that footwork. They have George in custody. They have Hannah in custody. They go to his house and they find some suspicious items that would have cleared this up right away if this happened in 2023. But it didn't. It happened in 1887. Sorry, Paul. And now we are a little stymied. He had bloody clothing. That was his clothing with blood all over it. He had wrapping cord that matched the kind of cord that was found near the torso that probably everybody and their mother had. And he had a bloody meat saw This guy worked once in a meat processing plant. He was in a slaughterhouse, so he had a meat saw. None of this could be connected definitively to Wakefield, but it is all weird. It's circumstantial, right? We don't know if this is even human blood. Yeah. 
part of the issue with George, of course, is this occupation in the slaughterhouse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, individuals like that, of course, are, you know, they're more likely to have the bloody clothing and the bloody knife inside their residence. Um, you know, this is where even though they don't have modern DNA testing or even modern serology to do human versus non-human type of evaluations, there may be clues as to, well, I mean, does this knife or his clothing is, does it have animal hair on it versus human hair? Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of patterns are we seeing? You know, you go and, and talk to the people who are also working in the slaughterhouse. Hey, what what does George do here? And evaluate how would he get the blood on his clothing within that environment and, and start determining certain things. What they're seeing off of the clothing, what they're seeing off of this, this meat knife, is that uh, something that is consistent with his activities, his known activities at the slaughterhouse, or is it more consistent with the homicide and then the subsequent dismemberment of Wakefield? So there's probably things they could have done if they knew what they were looking at. Yeah, it's hard. A lot of people would have had a meat saw in the late 1800s. It's funny, I've written about a couple of different axe murder cases. And you would think now, if you have an axe murderer in Austin, and then one in Bastrop nearby, and then one in San Marcos, and then, you know, one in Lockhart, and these are all towns that are 20, 30 miles away, you would think, oh my gosh, there's a consistency there, because we don't see a ton of axe murders now. But that's in the 1800s and everybody had an axe and it was right there. I mean, we've had a couple of axe murders on this show. So cultural context is really important. But let me just kind of smooth things out for George a little bit, if you believe this. Well, before you do that, though, you know, we have, you know, clothing and a knife that appears to have blood on it. Yep. But you also have a, an adult male that has been dismembered. And this is a bloody process. So now what else is going on inside George's house? Is there evidence of large blood pools or some cast off spatter, some dripped stains, etc. within his house, which obviously he's not bringing animals home and slaughtering them. You know, so now is there something more to go on that? Oh, there is a body that's being dismembered inside George's residence. They do not report any of that. No large pools of blood. This is not a crime scene. This is a guy who probably got a partial animal, brought him home and cut him up, you know, just for pieces for a stew or something. That's just conjecture on my part, because I still don't know how I feel about George. And I know this whole story. (laughs) The obvious question to Hannah as part of her fingering George's is, okay, so where was Wakefield cut up at? And evaluating that location to, to corroborate or refute her statement. Right. So it sounds like this is supposed to have happened at Wakefield's house, but they're examining the scene and they have not found anything that this is definitively the crime scene. So I don't know if it was a good cleanup. Of course, there's no luminol or anything happening back then. Mm-hmm. Also, like I go back to the stories that I have reported on where I picture in my head this beautiful, pristine crime scene where there's blood pooled exactly in the right place. And boy, this house could have been trashed. We don't know the condition of it. So I don't think they have a clear idea of where this happened. They're assuming that this happened at Wakefield's house because both of them are saying, George and Hannah are saying there was a big fight between these two guys. But let me go through this. George's friends and his acquaintances 
Everybody's coming to this guy's defense. His co-workers say that he was there the night that the murder supposedly happened. He was on shift that night. You know, Callie Nicole Gross, who wrote this book, said it felt like the whole black community was behind George. Nobody wanted to think that George would have done this, but that the community was also against Hannah. Sounds like because Hannah was not a great person. Doesn't mean she was guilty, though. It just means she was not a great person. But he's been alibied. How much do we trust alibis? I mean, this seems like a plus for George when you have all of these people coming to his defense. There's substance to the alibi. However, like you brought up before, it's also that cultural context. Right. There's a a segment of the community that is rallying behind George. I would imagine if you have, you know, coworkers saying he was on shift, you know, is there any documentation that is available? Did he have a time card that was being filled out? Is there an independent person, a manager, as an example, or somebody who has some jeopardy that if they were to lie to law enforcement, that they could lose their job and possibly be charged with a crime. I would want to dig into, okay, I may have a coworker who's friends with George saying that he was he was on shift during the time frame that Wakefield was likely killed. Right. But is there somebody more independent that I can rely upon to establish that alibi? And that's right now, we don't know that. Right now, it's just people that seem to be in George's corner, which kind of weakens the alibi a little bit. Yeah, we don't have anybody solid and no CCTV, of course. So there is no one solid who can vouch for George. And now George changes his story. So the criminal trial against both of them is looming and his story shifts. Hmm. He tells investigators, I'm going to cop to something. I did hit Wakefield with a chair, just like Hannah said, but it was only in self-defense because Wakefield attacked me first. He says, I don't know if I killed the guy, but I left as soon as I hit him with the chair. And by the time I got back, it sounds like he was saying that Hannah had already dismembered Wakefield's body and had divvied up the corpse and then instructed George to dispose of several body parts. So he took Wakefield's head and his limbs and put them in a nearby river in Philadelphia. So he's confessing to this now. He's saying this is what happened and sort of corroborating her story. She said it was an argument. He says it was self-defense. Both say it was with a chair. What do you think about that? You know, part of in assessing the type of injury that Wakefield had, the impact of the chair, sort of a bludgeoning with the chair, considering that there isn't going to be any damage to the torso is consistent with what the pathologist found. Mm -hmm. So there's a little check mark in my head going, okay, that at least is something that lines up with the evidence. It's, It's not necessarily definitive, but if the wound to the head is the only aspect of how Wakefield was killed, then that's consistent with the pathologist not finding anything to the torso. Right. The fact that George is changing his story, you know, this is where I, you know, I I get into, you know, on on one hand, just just up front, on one hand is at any time you get somebody who starts changing their story voluntarily, 
Now that becomes a problem mm -hmm. uh, because sometimes they change their story as they learn more about the details of the crime. And then they're going, oh, I've got to account for that. And because like, they've got this elaborate lie that they've you know, constructed, the lie is not accounting for some of the new details that they have found out. Mm -hmm. But I also have concern about law enforcement at this time and their their tactics the fact that, you know, you are dealing with now two black suspects, are they trying to get both of them to be convicted of this crime and possibly very heavy handed in terms of how they are approaching their interview process? Ding, ding. Oh, here we go. Yeah, he recanted. He said coerced, quote unquote, by police. I believe it. I think the police thought a black woman could not do this. I think the black community thought this guy didn't do it. And they had been sort of terrorized, some of them, by this woman. So I think you have people who are split. The media and the public believe one thing. The police believe something else. Mm -hmm. So now we're in a pickle here with George because he's going on trial. And they are both charged. George is charged with first-degree murder, Paul. Hannah was charged as an accessory to the murder. I go back to my initial instincts about, you know, how Hannah is saying this went down and that you've got this George character who she hardly knows is trying to con her about Annie and, you know, get the fight. Mm -hmm. Wakefield is killed. But now Hannah is trying to cover up a crime that this guy that she hardly knows and has is probably very angry at George. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't make sense to me. Why would she take that risk to herself? We know based on the history that Hannah and Wakefield had a violence filled relationship in which it appears that Hannah is the instigator of the violence. Mm -hmm. And we have a witness that is seeing Hannah on the train with what appears to be Wakefield's, likely Wakefield's torso in the shawl strap and the calico fabric, you know, so mm -hmm. everything seems to be more swirling around Hannah as being responsible versus George. I'm not doubting George tried to con Hannah. Yeah. I'm not necessarily doubting that maybe there was a fight between George and, and Wakefield. And I can't tell you whether or not uh, George is the one that swung the chair. It just seems like to finger George as being sort of the lead in this homicide doesn't sound right to me. Both George and Hannah are tried separately. They both plead not guilty. But George's trial goes first. And guess who the star witness is in this case? Hannah. Very good. Yes, it was Hannah. <laughs> yes. All-male jury, of course. All-white jury, of course. Hannah gets on the stand, and she is very, very smart and very composed. She sticks with her story with the same details. She says George is the one who did it. George is the one who dismembered Wakefield. And all she did was dutifully collect some of the body parts, including the torso, and throw them in different places to cover it up. What Callie Nicole Gross, who is the author, says is that she came across very sympathetic and somber. She never really talks about the affair, which is really good, because that would not have gone over well with an all-male, all-white jury. She meekly claims that she just sort of stood by while the men were fighting, and that George was the one who took a hatchet into her cellar and hacked up the body and that she never participated or witnessed this firsthand. So what's interesting, Paul, is now that I'm reading this aloud, we have a meat saw mm -hmm. 
at George's house, but we don't have a hatchet. And the meat cell had blood all over it. So there just seemed to be a lot of, I'm not sure that she lines up with what the scene was, at least at George's house, but I, I don't know. It's all very confusing. No, well, as you know, as I was thinking about the evidence, which is Wakefield's torso, you think about the George's skill sets. He works in a slaughterhouse. It, the slaughterhouse, you know, there is a process on how they dress down an animal in terms of skinning the animal, disemboweling an animal, and then taking the various cuts of meat, you know, at least to the level to where it could go to a butcher to be, you know, completely partitioned out for the customer. Mm-hmm. And here we have a torso that has been roughly cut basically through the midsection, through, imagine, the upper lumbar to lower thoracic spine area, but where it's going to be below the rib cage, mm-hmm. the head and the arms and the legs are, are cut off, but the bowels were just hanging out. And I would imagine if George is the one that is dismembering Wakefield, he's probably going to do it in a way that he knows how to, mm-hmm. which is going to be more of, I'm going to disembowel the innards of Wakefield, his internal organs are going to go into their own bank. Mm-hmm. You know, now he's got a cleaner carcass in order to be able to do what he can do. He's not going to use a hatchet. Yeah. When you're describing what they saw in this torso was how rough the actual cutting of this mm-hmm. torso was. It was not done with a knife with somebody who has skill, you know? And, and, and so this is where this hatchet has started to come into play. That almost sounds like a, a slip up, right? In terms of Hannah knows exactly how Wakefield was cut up because she's the one that's using a hatchet, which is not a real good tool to dismember a body with. It's not an easy tool. All of that makes sense to me. I think it doesn't make sense to an all-male, all-white jury who still does not believe that a woman would be able to do this. And they are looking at George Wilson and listening to Hannah and how composed she is on the stand and not being able to put this together, just like the Lizzie Borden jury couldn't put it together. I think one point that I I, want to make, though, is that this jury is hearing the prosecution put on a case against George. Right. So does the defense come up and basically say it wasn't George, it was Hannah? You know, I'm wondering, does this jury, do they even get into this debate? Was it George or was it Hannah? Or is it just, here's the evidence against George. The defense is trying to, you know, say, well, no, Hannah's is the actual real killer, you know, because of this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. But they don't hear the full case that is actually against Hannah. You know, so they really don't have all the details like what we're talking about in order to weigh George versus Hannah. They're just going, do we have a case against George? The evidence, the prosecution is, is pointing at George. He's the defendant. And that's why they put George on trial first. Yeah. And so this is what ends up happening. He is on trial again for first-degree murder. His defense, of course, is that I had nothing to do with this. You know, I had police pressure. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't dismember anybody. I didn't do anything except tell this woman that I had information about this child who was in her custody. And that was it. And he is found guilty. His defense team appeals and they win a new trial. George is very upset, of course. He doesn't want to go through this again. So he opts to take a plea deal to second-degree murder. 
and is sentenced to 12 years in prison, which, quite frankly, seems like a very light sentence for second-degree murder in the late 1800s. I was a little surprised. But he just says, I think I'm going to get, with her testimony, I think I'm going to be convicted again. This is how quick appeals worked back then. Hannah's trial had not even started yet when George appealed and won the new trial and then decided to take a plea deal. So Hannah, rather than going on trial, also decides to take a plea deal to being an accessory to murder. So she never has to go on trial. Nothing ever comes out about her. We don't have people taking the stand talking about how terrible this woman is. We don't hear Jane saying, uh, she slashed my brother with a knife. She threatened his life. None of that happens. She gets two years and she only serves one year. And then she's gone. And that's it. Somebody who I think, and you probably think single-handedly, did all of this herself and dragged this guy into it who was probably just sort of slightly sleazy, and that was it. All of this, and she gets one year, and gets married twice and has a kid and vanishes from history. Well, part of you, when you think about Hannah going on trial, and you're you're talking about some of her past crimes, in, in all likelihood, none of those details would have been put in front of the jury just because of the prejudicial nature of that. You know, that may have been at, at the sentencing aspect, at least in kind of modern times, uh, that that's how that likely would have occurred. Uh, so the prosecution would have to put on, you know, the facts of the case in terms of the, the homicide of Wakefield and not necessarily be able to put in front of the jury all the various acts of violence and, and criminal activities that Hannah has committed in her in her past. But against him, I mean, she attacked him before and threatened him. So that would have made it in. I mean, I, a lot of stuff would have made it in in the 19th century. But I mean, don't you think today we would have heard as a jury that two weeks before she slashed him and threatened to kill him? I think that would have been something that would have been litigated in terms of, Mm. you know, uh, outside of the juror's presence and and see if the judge felt that it was relevant or too prejudicial. I I think it could could swing both ways. Okay. In listening to this case, I am in the, the position of Hannah was responsible for whatever reason, which it doesn't seem like we we know for sure what her motive would have been to eliminate Wakefield, but she took it upon herself to kill him and dispose of his body. And, you know, we we didn't talk about the black eye Hmm. in terms of contemporaneous to this crime does have a black eye. Would she have resorted to poisoning Wakefield? Would she have hit him in the head from behind, you know, and and he's just completely stunned. Does he have the ability to fight back? Don't know. You know, as I'm kind of thinking out loud, everything that I'm hearing about this, whether George was an accessory or not, I kind of lean towards he wasn't. I think he was an 18-year-old kid that got sucked into something and he really didn't know how to get himself out of it. But Hannah appears to be the one that killed Wakefield and dismembered his bodies. And we have witnesses showing that she's the one that's at least with one body part getting rid of it. So ultimately, George survives his sentence of 12 years and he vanishes. We know nothing about Annie, Hmm. but that is a product of the times and of her race because there were very few records. We have no idea I have a feeling that Annie was not murdered. I think that Hannah killed Wakefield because he was leaving her. She was being left for another woman. I think this was probably an act of passion, and then she covered it up. 
But I think Annie was not murdered. I think she was floating around out there. And because she was black and this was the 19th century, she just disappeared from the records. I'm quite surprised at the amount of detail that there is on this case. Mm-hmm. You mentioned it was fairly high profile at the time. It was. But it's not something you've heard of, right? I mean, it is not a Sam Shepard. It's not a Lindbergh baby. And it is quite a case. Yeah, no, for sure. You know, but, you know, it, it really does underscore. Obviously, we have the, the race issue in terms of the cultural aspects and societal aspects related to it and how that's going to influence how law enforcement handles the case and how the, you know, the courts are possibly handling the case at that point in time. But also that bias against uh, a woman being capable of doing this. And that's where for those that have worked within law enforcement, and have seen the violence that women are capable of, you know, that is something that in this day and age, at least, it is not unexpected. You know, we do not eliminate the idea that, oh, a woman is not capable of committing this crime. There are certain crimes that we know are almost exclusively male, and that's when you get into the fantasy-motivated type homicides that I specialize in. But when you start talking about, oh, there's too much violence here, a woman can't do that, oh, no. Women can be very violent. And with that, (laughs) I will see you same bat time, same bat station next week. (laughs) Thank you, Paul. All right. Sounds good. All right. Take care. This has been an Exactly Right production. For our sources and show notes, go to exactlyrightmedia.com slash sources. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Research by Marin McClashen and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Our mixing engineer is Liana Squilacci. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. Our artwork is by Vanessa Lilac. Executive produced by Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hartstark, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow Buried Bones on Instagram and Facebook at Buried Bones Pod. Kate's most recent book, All That Is Wicked, A Gilded Age Story of Murder and the Race to Decode the Criminal Mind, is available now. And Paul's best-selling memoir, Unmasked, My Life Solving America's Cold Cases, is also available now. Follow Barry Bones and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase Buried Bones merch.